We'll be going through the book of John and then continuing the series on uh, backsliding in the evening, which I'll be doing part two tonight. So that's that. And we had Dyson Taggart become a member in Surrey, which is great. He is engaged to Isabel Dipor. They'll be getting married in July next year, the 15th. Pretty impressive that I know the date when they're getting married, but uh, they have been uh, telling me probably every day for the last few weeks the day of the wedding. <laughs> Type of pressure not to forget. So we're very excited for Dyson and Isabel um, and his membership today. So now we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 19, and I will read to the end of the chapter. We'll try to get through a fairly lengthy section. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him. That day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and John and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, let us pray for God to bless the word read and preached in our midst. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We ask that its clarity would be not a hindrance to us, but rather a blessing to us so that we may see and believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We pray this for his name's sake. Amen. Well, as you read chapter 1, the first 18 verses and you believe that Jesus is the Word, and the Word is God, and God who inhabits the places of eternity, who is almighty, who is majestic, who is in every place and knows the end from the beginning, who is utterly unlike man, and yet we are told in verse 14 that this God, the Son of God, became flesh, and we have seen His glory You might expect that as people come to follow Jesus and believe in Jesus, that things would happen that would defy explanation, you know, stars dancing around and mountains jumping up and throwing themselves into oceans and all sorts of crazy stuff happening because God is on the scene and yet God is on the scene and the way in which God comes to be believed in is by people doing ordinary things. They go and speak to someone. Come and see. Come and see. They come and they see and they believe. It is by word of mouth. It is by word of testimony that Jesus begins to build his church in a fairly ordinary way. What is so extraordinary is that God has become flesh and yet It is so ordinary, at least most of chapter 1, in terms of how people come to believe in him. And what you might find interesting is there are times when the extraordinary happens, when miracles happen, and you would think that would lead to worldwide belief. And it seems to have the opposite effect. So in John's gospel, he feeds the 5,000, And at the end, he has to ask his 12 disciples, are you also going to turn away? So, you can imagine that as we think of those who uh, claim they would believe in God, they would believe in Jesus if he would just come down and speak to them, if he would perform miracles, the testimony of Scripture seems to give us a little bit of a different picture. Keep on speaking to people about the Lord. Keep on witnessing to Christ. Keep on being an ordinary person in an ordinary world talking about an extraordinary Savior. Now John 
is one who has such a relationship to Jesus Christ. And his relationship to Jesus Christ is one whereby he is doing great things. Revival has broken out. People are coming to be baptized by John. He's the last Old Testament prophet. God speaks to him as we see in the narrative. God says, hey, the one who you see the Spirit rest on, that is the one who is the Messiah. So John is receiving revelation from God John is being blessed by God, and so the religious leaders want to find out who this person is. And you can imagine it might be tempting when all of these people are following after John to John to want to embrace all of this, and perhaps he is the Messiah. But the question is, is he the Messiah on God's terms? And God's terms are very different than man's terms. And so they ask him questions, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. You see the awkwardness of the English language there? It's really to bring out a twofold confession. I confess, I do not deny, I confess. There's like three ways of saying who he is not. And he says, I am not the Christ. And again, that may seem like an easy thing to say, you are not. But when you have maybe thousands of people following after you, you don't know the temptation to maybe want to embrace this newfound fame. But he says, I am not the Christ. Who are you, Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And by that, they mean the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 that Moses spoke about. And they maybe could have gone on and on. Well, are you this person? Are you that person? And he says, no. In fact, he affirms who he is. I am not Elijah, I am not the prophet, I am not the Christ, I am one who calls out in the wilderness, making straight the path of the Lord. I am the one who bears testimony to the Word, to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And so they ask him, well, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And it's really interesting because he doesn't deny his rights to baptize, but even as he speaks of his rights to baptize, he lessens himself because of how he speaks of his right to baptize. So he says, I baptize with water. Yes, I am baptizing a baptism of repentance, but while there may be many, many people coming after me and following me and being baptized by me, while God's blessing may be upon me, while I may be vindicated in my prophetic role, among you stands one you do not know. Which, if you just take that in the abstract, means absolutely nothing. There's people here I don't know. They just show up on Sunday. I don't know who they are. They might have accidentally walked in. But he's not saying that. He says, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This is how great he is. I baptize with water. Now keep that in mind. I baptize with water because as John makes a public witness to Jesus Christ in verses 29 to 34, you'll find out why that's so significant. Because the next day, Jesus actually arrives onto the scene. And the first words that come out of John's mouth are what? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And 
if you read your Old Testament, you might expect that if he says he's the Lamb of God, there should be a connection then to sin and salvation. Why? Because Abraham speaking to Isaac, son, God will provide a lamb. God will provide a lamb. Or Moses in Exodus, the Passover lamb. Or in Isaiah chapter 53, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. So the Old Testament prepares us for the language of lamb and salvation. And so he says, behold the lamb of God. And doesn't stop there because you cannot stop there. The lamb of God in the abstract, again, is meaningless. But this doesn't come to us in the abstract. It comes to us in the context of the Old Testament of saints yearning for the Messiah who takes away the sin of the world. Who takes away the sin of the world. That is fundamentally the most important thing for you and I of who Jesus is. He is able to take away the sins of not just one person, but the world, because the one who was after John, that is born after John, is actually before John, because he is no mere man, but he is the God-man. And G.K. Chesterton, when asked why he was a Christian, he said, I needed somebody to take away my sins. Someone has to deal with my sins and I cannot. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now John recognizes in verse 31, I did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. I came baptizing with a baptism of repentance. But then John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Now this is very interesting because Jewish people listening to this are going to have a, I think, well-developed theology of baptism based upon the Old Testament. Baptism is not a New Testament invention. It doesn't just arrive in the New Covenant and people say, oh, what is this? Water now. We used to cut off foreskin. Now we use water. That is not the case. The flood was a type of baptism. Peter tells us that. The Red Sea crossing is a type of baptism. But Jewish people had all sorts of baptisms. They had baptisms of utensils. In Mark's gospel, we're even told the Pharisees baptized their couches. So at home, they would baptize their couches. They would sprinkle water ceremonially on couches. Now, John, pouring water out upon people, is giving them a baptism of repentance. But the Old Testament actually prepares us for these baptisms and their fulfillment in Christ. So, in Ezekiel chapter 36, we read from verse 25, the promise of the new covenant, I will sprinkle clean water on you. There you go. See that? That's why we do it. (laughs) We are fulfilling the promise of, of the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. John may be able to baptize with water but for the promise to be fulfilled someone needs to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit because that is what God promised. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. That is why Jesus came. Because as great as John is, and there were none born of a woman greater than John the Baptist, he could only ultimately deal with the outward reality of baptizing with water. It required someone who could go to the core of your being and give you what only he can give you, his spirit. Now remember, John baptizes Jesus. And we uh, might ask the question as John did, hey, I should be baptized by you and yet... You would be baptized by me. And Jesus says, this is to fulfill all righteousness. And I actually think John understands immediately then that Jesus is being ordained into the ministry as a priest and so had to be baptized publicly for God to vindicate him, but also to fulfill what the Old Testament Scriptures. And if you go to Numbers chapter 8, verse 7, when the Levites, for example, were ordained to the ministry, they had to go through a cleansing. And one of the cleansing aspects of their ordination was the sprinkling of water on their head. And so Jesus was baptized by John in order that Jesus might then baptize with the Holy Spirit all of those who belong to him. And you say, okay, I'm starting to learn a little bit today, Mark. Well, did you not notice in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 that we read earlier that all of the glories of Jesus Christ are spoken about there, but then you get to verse 15. So he shall sprinkle many nations. That when Jesus says to his disciples, go into all nations and baptize them, it's the fulfillment of what is said here in Isaiah chapter 53, what is happening in Ezekiel chapter 36, and so on. Jesus is bringing new life to Israel. Now, there's also something that I like about the way John writes, and you have to look closely and carefully. But if you look at verse 1, for example... Look at verse 1 of John chapter 1, and you'll see what are called inclusios. And inclusios are fancy word of just talking about how it brackets ideas. And so when you look at John 1, 1, notice the language. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you look at verse 18, because it's bracketing in these two verses ideas that took time to develop. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God, and the Word was God. Verse 18 is a commentary on verse 1. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. What is the role of the Word to make God known? So verse 18 is a commentary on verse 1, but look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now there's another inclusio, a bracket. Where do you find it? Verse 34. What's the answer? And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Who are you, John? Who are you? I am a witness that this is the Son of God. That is who you are. People can ask you, who are you? You could say your name, and that would be true. You could say what you do, that would be true. But if you can't get to the point where you say, I have borne witness that Jesus is the Son of God, then you are not a Christian. 
That is what Christians do. Just like John the Baptist, they say, He is the Son of God. Now, you'll also see that as John was a disciple, so Jesus gathers in more disciples. So the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, you see, John has already said this, and he's saying it again. This is just to remind you that you probably should continue to bear witness, as Jesus does, of the reality of who Christ is. Now, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus, just like that, because of something he said. Did John perform a miracle? No. What did John do? He did something that you can do. He can testify of Jesus. Now Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, before we continue, I just want to make a little point here that maybe will be helpful to the theological students in our midst. Do you see why we have Bible translations? Three times, I think, already in chapter one, John is actually using a Hebrew or Aramaic word, and he's saying, this is what it means. He's not actually being fancy from the pulpit and, you know, quoting Latin, Hebrew, Greek, and saying all this, and no one knows what he's talking about. I was actually told that uh, as a pastor, you should always say something in your sermon that is so utterly incomprehensible that people say, well, there's a reason why he's the pastor. (laughs) I don't believe that's... You should do that, but I was told you should do that because anyone could think they could get up here and preach then. You've got to say something crazy, you know? So I don't know how your work, works of supererogation are going this week, but hopefully well. Anyway, what does he say? Which means teacher? Or verse 41, which means Christ? And you could also uh, look at the rest of the narrative and you'll find that John is always translating So they are bold enough to say, where are you staying? You have to give them credit. They're taking their opportunity, and Jesus says, come and you will see. Jesus doesn't brush them aside. He invites them in. And one of the more interesting studies of the New Testament, and especially the Gospels, is the social connections that Jesus makes and the way in which Jesus is very much a person who loves to be around people. And you can look from the beginning of Matthew and go to John, all of the references to Christ eating with people, being with people, inviting himself over to someone's house, having dinner. Because that is a way you can testify to who Jesus is. He himself did it. So they watch the master at work. And what is the first thing that Andrew did in verse 41? He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Imagine, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. There again, which means Peter. We have found the Messiah. And they follow him. And it does... Remind us, does it not, that usually in our connections as human beings, those we love 
dearest and closest, we should be trying to speak to them about who Jesus is. It's very natural. He first found his own brother. He first found his own brother and said to him, we found the Messiah. But then Jesus also calls Philip and Nathaniel. You see this in the remainder of the chapter. And uh, again, for the most part, quite ordinary, though there is a, a section where it does appear to me to be somewhat miraculous. So as they are finding people, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. What does Philip do? He found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. This has already happened. We've found the Messiah. Now we've found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. So if you just go through chapter 1, you'll find that Jesus is called a whole host of things. He's called the Lamb of God, for example. He's called Rabbi. He's called Messiah, Christ, Son of God, King of Israel, Son of Man. And here, he is called the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. And Nathanael asks a question in verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So the Messiah has come and he's from Nazareth, and Nathaniel asks a very honest question. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I have actually been to Nazareth. I've preached in a church in Nazareth. Amazing opportunity, and I totally sympathize with Nathaniel. Nazareth is not up to much. It's not pretty. Israel is beautiful, best food in the world I've ever had, but not Nazareth. Nazareth lives up to its name to this day. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So what does Philip say? Come and see. I kind of like how there isn't a massive fight there at the end of verse 46. Come and see. Just come and see for yourself with your own eyes. So Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him, and after he has asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Notice what Jesus does in response to Nathanael. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Not that he's sinless, but that he is a God-honoring man of integrity. And Nathanael, quite shocked, says, how do you know me? And so Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So Jesus saw him under the fig tree. Now, this may appear to be sort of a no big deal. You know, someone's walking by, see someone under the fig tree. But look at the way in which he responds. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Why would he respond that way just because Jesus said he saw him under the fig tree? It doesn't make any sense. Now, we could say that maybe Nathaniel believed himself to be totally alone so that if somebody saw him... It was, in some regards, supernatural. If I could go a little bit farther than that, I think it may also be a case that when someone was under a fig tree, it typically referred to a place of meditation and prayer. And when you get to the end of this chapter, there's a reference that alerts us to Jacob's ladder. And we know Jacob was one who wrestled with God. And so I think, based upon a little bit of sanctified hopefulness and imagination, as well as some contextual factors, that Nathaniel was likely under the fig tree praying 
And a praying, praying Israelite at that point would almost certainly have been asking God for the coming of the Messiah. It was such an expectation that it would be unthinkable to go and meditate and pray before God and not ask for the Messiah to come. Because look at all of the context. We found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. Maybe Nathaniel was praying, God, reveal your Messiah. When will he come? And Jesus then says to him, when he was alone under the fig tree, praying for God to answer that prayer, I saw you. So that he responds, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. In other words, Whatever happened with Nathanael under the fig tree and Jesus seeing him was not merely because Jesus happened to walk by. You will see even greater miracles than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which is very clearly a reference to Jacob in Genesis. Now, what does that mean? It basically means that in Jesus Christ, heaven and earth have been reconciled. Heaven has been opened. Christ has come. There is a pathway now to God. The angels ascend and descend. And as Jesus descends to earth, so we ascend to heaven. So we are raised with him. It's a glorious statement of what he is doing. Not just who is he, but what is he able to do? He's able to bring us to heaven. He's able to reconcile heaven and earth. Well, let me just finish with one point of application, and that goes back to the matter of what is going on here? Jesus has been revealed, but people have to go and see for themselves. People have to witness. People have to understand, not just believe reports. And people then have to orient everything about how they understand their life through then the person that they come to see who is the Word of God. And this is the big difference between those who are Christians and those who are not. In fact, if you look at a lot of young people right now, people at university, people who are young, they believe things they have no business believing. They believe reports. They believe falsehood. They live in a world where they're ready to be offended and ready to offend. In fact, I think in 2016 at the University of Indiana, there was a bit of mayhem because there was on the university campus of the University of Indiana, a Ku Klux Klan member walking around at night in white robes with a whip who turned out to be a Dominican monk holding a rosary. Now, I might call someone because of a Dominican monk holding a rosary for theological reasons. But do you think this is an isolated case? No, at Oberlin College in Ohio, another place where all sorts of nonsense takes place, they claim that another Ku Klux Klan member is walking around on campus. The university president gets involved. Classes are canceled for the day. It was a homeless person who had a blanket on them. And then you can go to another example at Michigan State University where they claim a noose is hanging from a tree when in fact someone had found a shoelace and decided to put it up on the tree in case someone had lost a shoelace. And then there was a comedian, a lady by the name of Sarah Silverman. And you can look this up. Go onto uh, Google and type Sarah Silverman swastika. 
and she's going for her morning coffee, and what does she see? But swastikas painted on the ground, and so she lambasts these neo-Nazis who have the effrontery to paint swastikas on the ground when in fact they were there as signs for where the construction workers had to do their work. The point is, people are so willing to believe anything without actually investigating the truth. Classes are canceled. Pandemonium breaks out because people want to believe what they want to believe. And people don't want to investigate for themselves. And everything you read about in John chapter 1 is not just that the Messiah comes and you have to believe in Him, but that the Messiah comes and then people show Him. Then John is told by God Himself, the one whom you see the Spirit resting on, that is the Messiah. Then the disciples, they go and spend the night with Him. They stay at His place. Then Nathanael comes and he sees Him and then he believes. And then what happens when you believe in Jesus Christ is you start to interpret the whole world around you through the lens of Jesus Christ Himself and not through any other lens that will ultimately destroy you in one way or another. So what happens when you believe that Jesus is fundamentally to you the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Well, that changes everything about how you wake up in the morning. That changes everything about how you value other human beings and what potential they may have or not have as those made in the image of God. It changes everything about whether you're a proud person or a person of humility because if He has taken away the sins of the world, you are not taking away your sins. Someone is taking away your sins. And so you should be a person who understands this whole world in light of the reality that there's a Savior. And He's not just a priest who takes away our sins. He is also a prophet who teaches us, Rabbi, you are our teacher That fundamentally your understanding of this world and who you are comes from the mouth of Christ, not from the news, not from social media, not from your friends, but from Jesus Christ. That He is the Son of God who is the King of Israel. That He is the Lord of your life. You are not the Lord of your life. The Prime Minister, the President, the Teacher, whoever it may be, is not the Lord of your life. Who is Jesus? He is the King of Israel. He is the prophet that Moses spoke about. He is the Lamb of God. And He is the one that you are to interpret everything in your life through the lens of who He is. And nothing else. Because once you rid Christ and look at this world through any other lens, it's going to be a depressing place where you're going to believe all sorts of nonsense. And that nonsense usually has the effect of making you exceedingly depressed. But what could be more glorious than to say with John, each day, behold the Lamb of God who takes away my sins, the sins of the world too, so that I may testify, just as these disciples did, that He is the Lamb of God, and that people, through such ordinary means, would come to believe in such an extraordinary person. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for the Lamb of God who takes away our sins so that we can live in this world joyful, joyful, 
secure and confident that the Lamb of God is also the King of kings, that He is also the prophet of God, and that we can be secure in who He is rather than in who we or others may be. And so we ask for the security to be ours in Christ Jesus for each person here. Amen.